Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So, you know, virtual reality has really developed over the last few years. You know, originally it was extremely pixelated, you could hardly see through it, and you had these weird accessories, you had the gaming gloves and all sorts of random stuff. But the development of VR has been all up to this point, it's all kind of been in a test environment. You had to go to a special convention or something to get your hands on this stuff. Uh, Usually people in the public, they can't get access to this stuff. Well, that's just about to change. Starting in May 2020, Valve, which is the big gaming company, and they're known for their Half-Life series, are coming out with a new Half-Life game called Alex, and it's specifically going to be on VR. Some people might have heard of these infamous Half-Life 3 jokes when it comes to gaming and especially Valve. You know, for the last decade plus, Valve's kept players on the edge of their seats with the whole Gordon Freeman story until now. And from what some early game testers are saying, you know, it's going to be a 15-hour game of pure VR content. So the main point is that this game should be what sells VR to the masses. A bit like, if you think back a couple of years ago, what the Wii uh, with Wii Sports You know, Wii Sports sold the Wii. You always need that one game that really shows off the technology so that others can build on it and then make their own creations. But getting back to Valve and their whole VR setup, they partnered with HTC, which you might recognize, they make some phones and other electronics, uh, and they partnered a few years back to make the Vive VR project. But then Valve kind of decided, you know what, we kind of want to do our own thing, and they made their own VR headset, and it was called the Valve Index. Now, the headset is really special. Now, it has a refresh rate, which is the rate at which the screen in the little lenses kind of they refresh and it shows you a smooth picture of 144 hertz. That's really high. And why is it really that important? Well, if you've ever been to an Apple store, you know, this is a great example. If you go to an Apple store, you notice there's these high-end iPads and they have really smooth screens, especially those iPad Pros when you swipe or do anything on them. Uh, That's all due to high screen refresh rate. Uh, This is actually really critical for VR because, you know, a lot of people that try VR, they get motion sick very easily because our eyes usually don't have the same refresh rate as a screen. However, 144 hertz, you really aren't going to notice a big difference, meaning you're not going to get sick. And that's, that's pretty cool, right? That's the main point. Uh, But there's another thing, the resolution. If you've ever held up a smartphone right up to your face, you can usually see just barely, but you can usually see the little pixels. Now keep in mind, smartphones usually have the highest pixel density. So that means they've got as many pixels crammed into a tiny one inch area as any other screen. Now Valve's index 
also has a very high screen resolution, but also needs a wide viewing angle. So they can't really tell that you're watching a screen. But going on to the index controllers, because to me, I think that's the coolest thing. Uh, they're a huge upgrade from the clunky uh, HTC Vive controllers in functionality and just comfort. Uh, the two biggest things that stood out when I was looking at it is the Valve Index can track your finger movement. And why, why is that important? Well, the controllers, they don't actually need you to grip them at all. They have back straps. So although this sounds like something small, what it allows you to do is pick up items, just like in real life. But what's most important is that the testers said the biggest sensation of just letting go of the controllers and then re-gripping them when you pick something up in the game really creates an immersion. Plus, you've got those finger sensors, which kind of also track uh, pressure readings. If you really grip the controllers, it's going to say, how hard are you gripping this? And as an example, what you could do is you could pick up a can, squash it in your hands, and I mean, this is something that you couldn't really do before. But on top of all of that, uh, the reason that this is so important is because Valve is bringing true VR to the home. But unlike the Wii, it'll be for PC. So that makes the possibilities endless. I can tell you just from a past experience, uh, I went to Seagraph last year and they had these VR setups and people had demos. They had music creation. So you'd go in and you would kind of go into this virtual world, create some sounds and music. Uh, and then they also had some storytelling games, uh, and then you had 3D modeling. It was really crazy. Uh, but what's interesting enough is the film industry, which you kind of think is restricted to the 2D world, uh, they're trying to get on board with this VR storytelling. Uh, so Valve CEO Gabe Newell and film director JJ Abrams, quite a few years back, they had a conference talking about storytelling in games. And the whole talk was about, you know, how do we get our audience to interpret the stories and interact with it? And with gaming, uh, it's kind of moving more and more over to a cinematic genre. So it looks like the two industries are starting to combine. Uh, JJ agreed, even with Gabe, uh, that the Half-Life Portal movie, it should be a thing. And it was supposed to happen, so although we haven't heard any new info on it, uh, it could be just like Half-Life Alex. They could secretly be working on a VR story for it. But will it be worth the thousand dollar price uh, to get on board with this whole VR revolution? Well, I guess we're just gonna have to wait and see. But this marks a really interesting point because like I said, the film industry, if this starts to get involved, we might see cinemas with VR screenings. So you might walk in, get your headset, and you might be walking around the movie set. That'd be kind of cool for like the last Star Wars where you're like actually in the film. And talking about having a role in a film, how about rolling a TV? Well, have you ever thought about what TVs are going to look like in the 2020s? Sounds so far away, but it's only a couple of months. Well, most people believe that we'll have projectors or we won't even bother with them. You know, in general, we use a computer or uh, a phone or an iPad uh, to watch a film. So, you know, could TVs just become irrelevant or could they reinvent themselves? I mean, what if they evolved? Well, say no more because LG has the answer. Uh, they have a rollable TV called the Signature Series OLED TVR, which sounds really expensive. Uh, and it was shown at this year's IFA 2019 Expo. And while it could release in Korea by the end of the year, it's unlikely that the futuristic roll-up TV is gonna be coming to any Western markets quite as soon. 
Uh, but according to LG, the LG Signature Series R9 in a 65-inch version, and that might be available for 2020 Western markets. But they didn't give a price, they didn't tell you how much it was going to cost, and I mean, honestly, if you just look at this is not going to be cheap. Keep in mind, it's a bit like the first flat screen TVs. Those, you remember those 720 TVs? We kind of think 720 is standard definition, but back then, that was HD. Those TVs were up in the thousands. Uh, originally, they were in the tens of thousands. So they're going to be super overpriced for a while, but when the tech becomes cheaper, uh, it's easier to produce, you're going to start seeing this into more electronics. I mean, these OLED screens, flexible screens, you can already see them with like Motorola's new Razer phone. But you know, having a roll-up TV, that's pretty cool and all, but how's it really gonna change up how we view a TV? Well, what LG managed to do with the R-Series is use the OLED's flexibility to their advantage. And they were able to build a base that acts both as a storage facility and also an all-in-one sound system, which by the way, has a really good one. They managed to squeeze a very decent 4.2 Atmos sound system in there. Now, the housing unit itself, uh, which has all the tech inside it, has a plain white stand, and it almost looks a bit like a side table or one of those hallway tables, and it comes default with the TV. So, what a deal, what a bargain, now you get a little table. But like I was just thinking, you might say, how is this going to work if it keeps unfolding and then wrapping itself back up? Eventually, it's going to break, right? Well, the engineers told LG executives that the TV can be unfurled and furled back up, for around 50,000 times. So that means if you were to turn it on and off twice a day, you wouldn't have any problems for about 34 years. Also, according to LG, the 65 inch is held in place by two brackets uh, that prevent it from wobbling. Fortunately, that probably doesn't mean that you could throw uh, like a, a remote or something at it. It probably wouldn't survive. Um, but if you look around the back, you'll see it has HDMI 2.1. Uh, not HDMI 2, uh, so the 2.1 supports 4K 120 frames playback. Uh, and that's not even kind of a thing yet, but once it's available, it'll also have support for HFR content, and that's going to be arriving again later down the road. So while OLED isn't quite hitting the brightest highlights that LED and LCD and micro LED are hitting, uh, it's still one of the best display technologies on the market. But even more importantly, with these roll-up screens, we're going to see new possibilities of having TVs incorporated into furniture like hallway tables and all that kind of stuff. And talking about technology in the home, how about a piece of wood? Wow, sounds really exciting. Well, a company called Mew, which is over in Japan, they were showcasing their wooden smart display at CES 2019. And it's kind of shaped just like a simple plank of wood. Uh, the Muse Smart Display Houses is a touch-sensitive interface, uh, which is in the surface of this piece of wood. Uh, it displays visual data, touch control functions like thermostat, clock, weather information, dimmer controls for your lights, uh, text-based messages or slogans, and even a way to access your voicemail. So, I mean, you could imagine you come home uh, and you touch this piece of wood on the wall and it starts talking to you. It's kind of a bit weird, but anyway, the Mew display does come with a Google Assistant uh, and you can actually choose to have the AI's response displayed via text instead of audio. But as much as you want to get your hands on this cool piece of tech, you're going to have to wait a little bit because it's looking like it's going to be shipping to the first backers uh, because they did a Kickstarter program a little while ago and that campaign's finished, so they're going to get first. 
But then there's something you have to ask yourself. Is this a little bit pointless? Like, you know, when, when we're getting to the point where technology actually makes a simple task overcomplicated, you have to ask yourself, is it really worth it? Like, take example, uh, something simple like looking at the time. Now, we had watches, we have clocks, now we have phones. Now, that's a good example of technology being justifiable. Uh, it's, a, it's a good replacement. Now, take something like smart accessories uh, to do with something like selfies. Now, when we take a selfie, uh, normally we just go in the phone, you maybe put a countdown or whatever. Well, the new thing is to get a wearable jacket and you kind of pair it up and then you set it up with the camera. Then you have to have the camera app open. Then you tap the cuff of the jacket and then it activates the sensor to take the picture. And that's totally a backwards way of doing it. It takes longer and it doesn't make sense. It's a bit like those people that refuse to type in a message and they try and talk into their phone where it takes their voice, puts it into text. It doesn't quite work, but they keep doing it over and over and over again. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So you've probably heard about this uh, over pretty much every news source possible, but Tesla has finally released a pickup truck, and it costs less than $40,000. So admittedly, uh, this thing, it doesn't look like your everyday pickup truck, and when it was unveiled, a lot of people, including myself, were kind of taken a bit aback. But with all game-changing designs comes a transition period. And Tesla, whether you love them, you hate them, they're the only ones that were confident enough to try something like this and really go out full blast. And to be honest, they took a chance. And right now, they have over 200,000 people that have reserved a spot to buy this new Cybertruck. But let's talk about the specs, because everybody likes to say, oh, this kind of looks like... Uh, somebody drew it in kindergarten or something like that. So it's going to be 19.3 foot long and 6.65 foot wide with the height of 6.25 foot. So this is a big truck. Uh, and, you know, the base option is a rear-wheel drive model and that's going to have 250 plus miles of range. And the reason they say plus is because it hasn't got to the production model, they put the minimum, which is 250, and normally they get a bit more than that. It was a bit like the Model 3. Originally they said, I think this is near 200 miles range, and now the base model gets 250. So it's probably gonna be a bit more than 250 miles range. And the base model has a zero to 60 time of 6.5 seconds, which it's a little bit slower than the base Model 3, but currently it looks like it's gonna have a lot more range. The rear wheel drive model will also be able to tow 7,500 pounds. And keep in mind, this is going to cost $39,900. 
Now, the next spec up, uh, which seems to be the more popular one, is the all-wheel drive model with dual motors. And keep in mind, electric motors are much better than any kind of diesel, any kind of gas engine, especially for 4x4, because you get 100% torque at 0 RPM. Uh, now, this all-wheel drive version will have 300 plus miles of range with a 0 to 60 time of 4.5 seconds. So already now, this is getting really quite fast. Uh, you'll also be able to tow 10,000 pounds, uh, and this is going to cost $49,900. But to top all of that off, they have the tri-motor model. Now, this one, again, is equally as popular as the all-wheel drive, and you'll get, wait for it, 500 plus miles of range, 14,000 pounds towing, and a 0 to 60 time in 2.9 seconds, all for $69,000. $900. And I think they even had a quarter mile time of, I think it was near 10 seconds. So this, this is properly fast. Remember, this is a pickup truck. Now, keep in mind, you have a truck right now that is faster than a Porsche 911. So this is definitely different. And when you look at the event that they had, they had all sorts of weird stuff going on. They had that laser, like a cyberpunk style disco thing going on. They had Blade Runner movie prop cars outside. And interestingly, a stainless steel DeLorean. And it was the actual one from the Back to the Future films that they brought from Universal Studios. And that's a really cool thing because the Cybertruck is actually going to be made structurally out of stainless steel. It's not going to just be panels like the DeLorean. A lot of people think that the DeLorean was stainless steel, but underneath it wasn't stainless steel. Uh, now, there's a rumor that this thing's also going to be watertight, meaning, possibly, you could totally go underwater. Remember, you don't have a, a gas or a diesel engine. You don't really need air for the engine. And that would explain why possibly there was a James Bond submarine car at the event. Now, by the way, that's Elon's personal car. He did actually buy the one from the film. And on top of all of that, Elon said over Twitter that there's going to be a SpaceX Starship edition as well as a Mars rover pressurized version. But let's talk about the thing that everybody's concerned about, the design. And you know, the next time when you hear some hate about it, just remember to take a moment to go back a couple of decades ago. Remember the early sci-fi movies and the books that made you dream about the future, uh, where anything was possible. A bright future that we've almost forgot about now. Uh, our current sci-fi media is a lot darker. It's often very dystopic and very depressive. But I think what Elon Musk's trying to do is remind us all that we used to dream about what the future, we, we hoped the future of mankind once was. And to try and give us back that little bit of hope. That we're still ready to make that future a reality. To let us dream about the future of advanced technology, science, and society again. So this whole thing, uh, the spirit of hope and enthusiasm for the future, I think that's really what Elon Musk wants to revive. Uh, after all, he's one of the few people out there that's working on a bright future. So what do we have to lose? Uh, and this Cybertruck, this concept, it stands for all of that. Again, I just want to make that very clear. We forgot about our futuristic dreams. You know, you grow up, you pay taxes, you settle, and then we just go on with our day-to-day -day routine and nothing happened. And what was long forgotten due to the lack of technological and scientific understanding can now be achieved and created. The future's now. Let's make the future what we used to dream of. Put your order in today and buy a Tesla Cybertruck.
you know I should probably work for Tesla's marketing team. At this stage, almost every episode, I'm telling everybody to get a Tesla, but it really is a good suggestion. Now let's talk about something that's a little bit more in the air. The world's first electric race aircraft, and this was unveiled at the Dubai Air Show this week. But why do we care about this? Well, just like all things, we create a lot more in competitive environments. So for UK-based Condor Aviation, they displayed an electric speed plane called the White Lightning for an electric flight contest planned for next year. Teams around the world, including Uber, uh, which was weird, are working on technology to create planes for the race. And the famous aircraft maker, Airbus, said that it hopes that the race is going to spark some new drive for electric flight technology. Jeff Zaltman, who's the CEO of the Air Race E, said in a statement that the racing series will provide a testbed for innovation and accelerate the journey towards electric commercial travel. We've now shown it's possible and are on track to create a history where planes like the one on display at the Dubai Air Show will take to the skies for the race next year. And this race is actually just an electrified version of the existing one, Air Race 1. Uh, which attracts thousands of people around the world to come and see these planes roar around the circuit every year. So Zoltman told the BBC that he plans to continue the tradition uh, and the race as well, but I can only see the potential of electric aircraft to revolutionize air travel. And I totally agree with him, it's just we need to nail the battery technology. Now Martin Wiseman, who's the managing director of Condor Aviation, said that creating the White Lightning e-plane was a challenge, but the it plus the race represents steps towards ultimately a goal of commercial viable electric flight. Uh, the goal is a pressing one in aviation industry, straining to reduce its environmental impact, with him quote saying, it's very much a case of it will come, but it's going to take time. Now the White Lightning uh, is kind of a, it's a converted Cassett aircraft that has around 200 horsepower and it can hit 300 miles per hour in the air. Uh, the plane has two electric motors, two propellers, uh, one that runs clockwise, another that runs anti-clockwise. Now the model will be on display in Dubai this week. However, it is only a fraction as powerful as the version that will compete in the Air Race E, says Wiseman. And what do you think the final horsepower number is going to be? Well, the final plane is projected to have 800 horsepower. So in a quote, Wiseman said, with that one, we'll race in Air Race E, but we'll also go for the world speed records. He seems to see that electric flight is offering advantages outside of its environmental benefit. Uh, the advantage with electric is that you get instant power, uh, he said, but it's not like a petrol engine where you've sort of got to warm it up and then it starts slowly. With electric power, you can go from zero to full power in a fraction of a second. And if you're not careful, you can pull the whole front of the plane off. But, you know, while his company is pushing to refine its plane, Wiseman acknowledged the current roadblocks that he and both the big plane manufacturers are facing right now. Uh, and he said, I think the difficulty we have is batteries. The motors are fantastic because you've got a lot of power and it's very lightweight, but you've got to get electric energy from somewhere and that's where we're struggling. So Airbus wants to speed up the electric plane innovation and Airbus as a founding partner of the race does not own any of the technology that the teams use or tell them what to build. It's more as scrutiny falls on the aviation industry for its emissions. Airbus is trying to do these competitions to release new concepts for all electric planes modified existing aircraft 
and they're trying to reduce their own fuel consumption. So even researching hyperplanes is what they're trying to do. And while Airbus has actually released all electric planes uh, that have successfully flown, uh, fully electric passenger planes remain still a distant prospect for now. In the short term, Bohr Schaffer said that the company is focusing on bringing electrifications to shorter distance travel, focusing on cities as well as introducing more electric components to conventional commercial flight. So it looks like the Airbus is investing significantly in electric flight and it looks like we're probably going to be experiencing it going into the 2020s. Now let's talk about something a little bit less powerful, the Pipistrol Alpha Electro. Now that sounds very cool, but in reality it's quite a fragile looking little thing. Uh, it's only 300 kilograms and I mean it's really earned its category, the ultra light aircraft. However, it does boast some really impressive performance uh, that even other planes can't even touch. So it can cover a range of about 160 kilometers or about 100 miles after only an hour of charging. And that full charge, that costs about $8. So few planes, not even competing with hybrid or electric, can even match that for sheer economy. And as the world's first serially produced electric aircraft, uh, this model was first launched from the company's home base in Sylvania. Uh, and it was good, you know, for about an hour of flight. And it's got the impressive 100 kilogram, 21 kilowatt hour battery which is very, very low. Uh, there's an electric car called the Fiat 500e that has a similar battery capacity, and that's a lot heavier than 100 kilograms, but that comes down to motor efficiency and weight. So according to Business Insider, there's already 40 of these things. Uh, they cost $200,000 each to produce uh, for European and US and Australian customers. The low cost makes it perfect for learner pilots. Uh, Benjamin Dodd, who's the director of operations at the Tie Up Aviation, said that the next generation of ultralight aircraft has been a real game changer, allowing them to, quote, provide training for young pilots as affordably and safely as possible. So electric aircraft, it's definitely the best direction, uh, especially for low flight uh, and training. But for New Zealand uh, training, it's still waiting to see the technology proven. And quote, they said, we decided to go for the fueled one because the electric plane is still very limited. You can't really take it cross-country flights. So entry into commercial training and building flight hours has previously been really expensive. Uh, but that might change very quickly now. And we're talking a lot about aircraft, but what about ground transport? Well, BYD and the Los Angeles Department of Transportation announced this week the largest electric bus contract in US history. Uh, the company's gonna build 130 of its electric buses called the K7M for the city's public transportation system. So it's about 30 feet long, uh, it's gonna have 22 seats and it has a range of about 150 miles and it can be recharged in about three hours. So the company says that the buses, they're gonna use 70% of the parts they are gonna be from the US. And the move uh, to switch from a considerable portion of the bus fleet uh, over to electric power is part of LA's broader goal to make its entire fleet zero emission by 2030. Beyond that, LA plans to make every city owned vehicle uh, zero emissions by 2050 as part of its own Green New Deal, according to CNET. The company says that those 130 buses will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 8,225 metric tons per year 
and by 98,700 metric tons over 12 years of useful life as buses on the network. And when you compare that to the buses in the city currently, uh, you run on compressed natural gas, the electric buses will reduce the greenhouse emissions by about 81%. Uh, in addition to lowering pollution, the BYD buses have a lower total cost of ownership. And you've got to remember, like with diesel and natural gas, you've got to repair components, you have to replace things. Electric, it's very simple, one moving part. So BYD offers a 12-year warranty plan on its batteries, with that being the longest in the industry. They also employ a thousand workers in North America, so it's not the only electric bus manufacturer with both unionized workforces and you know community benefit uh, agreements that set goals uh, Volvo's been mentioning some stuff as well so Volvo is a little bit more of a recognizable name and they're going to be supplying 157 of their buses to the city of Gothenburg in Sweden and transportation authorities don't invest that money in electric buses just so they can burish their green credentials uh, the electric buses are just more reliable uh, they're less to maintain and they have a lower fuel cost than conventional buses. They also ride quieter and a lot nicer too. So the day when all new buses will be electric, I mean it's really getting to that point and you could kind of argue that we're already at that stage. So we've talked about planes, we've talked about trucks, we've talked about buses. Uh, what about bikes? What about motorcycles? Now this is really like, this is a bit like the electric Mustang community. Uh, this isn't really something that is normally going to be accepting an electric, but Harley-Davidson uh, just unveiled its new electric motorcycle just a couple of days ago, and the company is hoping to expand its clientele by attracting new riders that want to shrink their carbon footprint. Uh, so the motorcycle uh, manufacturer has been in the business for more than a century. We all know Harley-Davidson, it's like a household name. And now they're starting to go into this more new audience. So now the company wants to reach these new riders uh, with their new bike called the Livewire, which is the first electric motorcycle. Uh, and as Brian Barnes, who's the CEO of Barnes Harley-Davidson over in Langley, Canada said, EV is where customers are headed. So the new bike, it doesn't look like a classic Harley, uh, definitely doesn't sound like one, but apparently that's what the point is. Uh, it's definitely a different and unique from the traditional design, and it's positioned in that way for the market as an electric bike. Uh, it's not what we traditionally think as a Harley-Davidson. So the company saw an opportunity to cash in by catering to customers who are consciously uh, thinking about the environment, and quote, we are currently looking into the product to bring us into a different clientele base that we don't reach every day. And that was Chris Norden, marketing manager for Harley-Davidson Canada. The company saw an opportunity to cash in by catering to customers who are conscious about the environment. And Chris Norden, who's the marketing manager for Harley-Davidson Canada, said, We're looking at this product to bring us into a different clientele that we don't reach every day. But again, I'm going to throw us back to the last future forecast because... I'm a Mustang guy, and much like the Harley-Davidson, the die-hard Harley-Davidson fans, when you get into something that was always known as, you know, where the Mustang was the big V8, you always think of a Harley-Davidson as this loud, really awesome-looking bike. And having it as electric, you're starting to go away from your brand identity. So it's going to be interesting to see how this goes on into the future, and especially even with the Mustang. Are they going to have these electric models and then have the one-off, 
you know, a V8 or, you know, with the Harley-Davidson, they're going to have the gas version. How is that going to work going into the future? Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Hopefully, we can preserve the beating heart of a gas-powered engine. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. Okay, so again, we keep moving into this new world of, you know, tech everything. We need to think about how we're going to power it. Energy. And we've got to think a little bit more creatively. Now, this is quite interesting. So, you know, with all the energy generation, uh, we need to sometimes think outside that box. Uh, And German architect Andre Brossel came up with a really great idea. Uh, He believes he has the solution. And the solution is to squeeze more juice out of the sun. Uh, even during night hours in really low-light regions. His company, Raw Lemon, has created a spherical sun power generator prototype that they call the Beta Ray. Uh, His technology is going to combine spherical geometry principles with the dual-axis tracking system so that it allows you to kind of yield twice as much of the conventional solar power in a much smaller surface area. You know, it's a really cool design. It's very futuristic. Uh, It's fully rotational and it's suitable for inclined surfaces. So even walls of building, anywhere with an access to sky, it could even be used as an electric car charger. And to quote what he said, the beta ray comes with a hybrid collector to convert daily electricity and thermal energy at the same time, while reducing the silicon cell area to 25% of the equivalent power output by using our ultrasonic transmission ball lens. Uh, Focusing the concentrator, it operates at efficiencies of nearly 57% in hybrid mode. Uh, At nighttime, the ball lens can transform into a high power lamp to illuminate your location uh, simply by using just a few LEDs. So the station is designed for off-the-grid conditions and as well as even supplying power to buildings uh, and the consumption of electricity and thermal circuits like hot water. And as much as this sounds cool, I I really think just as a design aspect, definitely go and check this out online. But as from a design aspect, it looks very cool. But, you know, what about areas that we can't just easily set up a power station? What about an area like the ocean? Now, that's where Sekdorn's uh, floating solar farm in the Netherlands comes up. And it just got built, actually, in a record six weeks. Uh, It's the fastest construction speed ever for the German company specializing in renewable energies. And it's in the sector Bayware, uh, who worked together with Dutch partner Grown Levin. The solar farm will have a yearly energy yield of 13.3 megawatt hours, saving about 6,500 tons of CO2 emissions a year and powering an equivalent of 4,000 households. 
And you know, floating solar power plants and what that name suggests, it really is just solar panels mounted to a structure that floats on water. Uh, they take advantage to reduce the area on land because you think about it, especially along the west coast, a lot of the areas we don't have much land because the real estate value's that crazy. So putting something out in the ocean might actually make a lot more sense. And they have other advantages, uh, they can actually shade water uh, and they can be installed in industrial pools and they can help with drinking water reservoirs and small lakes. And according to the World Bank, 10% of man-made freshwater reservoirs in Europe have the potential to produce over 20 gigawatt hours if floating panels were installed. So you can kind of see where this comes into its own. And the Sekdorn project is the largest floating solar installation in the Netherlands and is the second largest in Europe uh, to date following the Omega One project over in France. It's the third of its kind for Baywire after the completion of the plants and I'm probably going to mispronounce this Wipholder and Tenarolo. But what are the problems? Well, the typical ones with the floating solar farm are improvised cabling, improvised anchoring, no water movement under the system, and non-existent or insufficient quality of walkways. So what Baywire did, which was a little different, was they transferred their system design for ground-mounted installations into the water. And then they developed their own scheme for installation of photovoltaics on water surfaces. One of the spokesmen, when he was asked about the high durability and the long lifetime, uh, responded with, the key is the longer the system produces electricity, the lower the costs of energy production. Apart from that, the system guarantees low operation and maintenance costs as well as minimal impact on the maritime life. And floating solar, it's expected to follow a similarly fast kind of upward trajectory as solar power did. Especially in Belgium, the Flemish government in January 2019 announced six photovoltaic projects totaling 11.1 megawatt hours. Uh, in Portugal, there are plans to have two hydro solar projects which involve installing floating solar panels on a reservoir to supplement an existing hydro plant. And the chief executive officer of the member-led association for the whole production, uh, Solar Power Europe, said there's a terawatt scale of opportunity for floating solar projects and we are confident that in the coming years that many projects will arrive. So the Sectorm plant is planned to be fully connected to the grid in next, you know, the six months of 2020. Uh, Baywire is planning to do another construction of a floating solar farm in the Netherlands next year, including a 27.3 MWP installation that will be the largest in Europe. But what's happening up here in North America? Well, Nova Scotia has plans to make themselves 90% renewable by 2030. And this would mean that they would have to add 800 megawatt hours of wind power, uh, doubling the current position. and. 480 of solar generation. So the need for consistent supply when wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining would be obtained by building a 200 megawatt hour electrical link connecting power generated in Labrador to Nova Scotia via undersea cables. And as well as that, uh, there's going to be reports that they're going to have two huge batteries with a combined capacity of 480 megawatt hours of storage. And you know, I really think they should tweet at Elon Musk for that. Uh, and that's going to offset the higher costs of electricity bills. And the report also proposes a wide expansion of the Efficiency Nova Scotia program uh, to do deep 
retrofits of more homes and businesses to reduce energy consumption. And that program would see buildings switch from electrical baseboards uh, used for oil and heating of both air and water uh, over to efficient heat pumps. Stefan Thomas at the Energy Coordinator of Ecology and Action Centre said an enormous part of this report is the energy efficiency program which we have as part of the pathway. More than 80% of houses and businesses get deep energy retrofits, increasing efficiency to the point that they're using less than half of what they had before the retrofit. We're talking about making people more comfortable and reducing people's energy bills as well. I think it's important to note, uh, currently about 25% of Nova Scotia's carbon emissions are generated by burning fossil fuels, and that's in personal vehicles and to heat buildings. Uh, the report comes with a hefty estimated price tag of $200 million a year to make the proposed changes, but that's less than half a percent of Nova Scotia's GDP. So it's certainly a cost, but Thomas said he thinks it's doable and considering the benefits, it's probably worth doing. So his hope is that the provincial government and Nova Scotia Power will take the report into consideration as they plan the future of changes for the electrical generation. So it sounds like we've got some really awesome stuff happening right now all over the world. Well, not everywhere. Uh, China, uh, China's finance minister had announced that subsidization of renewable energy will be reduced as much as a third in 2020, according to a source from Reuters. And, you know, this is all okay, you know, reducing an incentive, that's fine. But when you have to issue an orange smog alert, uh, starting, just happened earlier this month, with pollution expected to be, quote, severe, then that's when it starts to say, hey, this kind of doesn't make much sense. Orange is the second highest level on a three-tier smog alert, uh, which triggers emergency levels. To minimize economic disruption, firms included on a positive list, uh, they're not going to be asked to shut down or cut powers or whatever. However, they will be encouraged to take voluntary action to reduce emissions, and that's what the Bureau said. So Hebei province, which surrounds the capital of Beijing, uh, contains five of China's smoggiest cities, uh, the top ten actually, uh, in the first three quarters of this year according to official data. Uh, it promised this week that it would strictly punish officials responsible for missing winter smog targets, but it would also vow to implement a more nuanced approach to controlling pollution and reframe a blanket of industrial closures. China's top steelmaking city, Tangshan, which is in Hebei, will impose a second level of pollution measures going on into the future, according to local media. Some steel mills will be ordered to halt uh, sintering and pelt production, and some will also have to curtail blast furnace operations by at least 50%. But according to Reuters' analysis of official data, it targets for 2019 to 2020. They're not that ambitious, and they're not that much uh, to offset last year's surge in smog. So as many as 15 out of the 28 smog-prone cities all around Beijing, Qian, and Hebei could still experience higher smog levels than the last two years, even if they meet their targets. And that kind of stokes fears about China. You know, they were kind of easing off just a bit, a little bit more economic easing. Asked about China's ambitions this year, Liu Yubin, who's a spokesperson for the Ministry of Ecology and Environment, told reporters that the intensity would not be reduced and the pressure would not change. But he also warned that winter weather conditions, especially this year, were expected to be much more unfavorable than the last two years, when strong winds helped to 
disperse emissions. But you know, this is this is really a lot to take in. Uh, all of this stuff, it really does show you how dangerous environmental damage and pollution can really be. So we really need to be careful, especially here on the West Coast. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So the future, where are we heading? Well, what about overpopulation? Well, on a brighter side, well, we know kind of a, a solution that we could get around it. We've got the starship, we're gonna be hopefully going to Mars and all of that's gonna happen. But what about floating cities? This sounds like a really cool idea. Well, over in the Netherlands, uh, floating homes have already become ubiquitous uh, as a solution for flooding. Uh, the nation has experimented with floating apartments and, you know, complexes, dairy farms uh, that bob all over the water. But building an entire floating city, that's kind of an unprecedented challenge. And for the most part, everybody that's attempted to do this to try and create an autonomous society that operates independently from the government, it usually doesn't work quite well. And that kind of a thing is not really acceptable in this connected world. Uh, having your own country, and your own rules and laws, uh, and independence from, uh, you know, that's a big red flag for a lot of countries around the world. But back in the early 1970s, luxury real estate mogul Michael Oliver attempted to build a floating island off the coast of Tonga in order to create his own self-sufficiency society. The planned community, which he called the Republic of Minerva, was supposed to have its own currency and do away with taxes and welfare. Uh, but the project was squashed by the king of Tonga, who said his nation already possessed the land. But the concept for floating utopias didn't die there. Uh, back in just 2008, uh, political theorist Patry Friedman teamed up with PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel to form a seaside institute. Uh, kind of like a think tank uh, that advocates for the construction of floating cities. So like Oliver, Friedman, and Thiel, they all subscribe to this libertarian ideology that freedom can be achieved by removing oneself from the strictness of government. And he said, our goal is to maximize entrepreneurial freedom to create blue jobs to welcome anybody to the next new world. It then said, we're credentialed, qualified, pragmatic idealists who plan to create one of the first nations not to aggress against any people. Much like Alphabet's efforts to build a high-tech city in Toronto, uh, the Seasteading Institute views floating cities as a testing bed for new ideas. Among the other organizations, eight moral imperatives are plans to enrich the poor, clean the atmosphere, generate autonomous power, and live in balance with nature. And these priorities, they're not unlike those of the Oceanic City, 
Uh, at the UN Roundtable, the designers described their plan to build an autonomous energy source for the community, produce fresh water sustainability on site, and achieve zero waste. And instead of high emitting cars or trucks, Oceanic City would allot spaces for driverless vehicles and experiment with new technologies such as drone deliveries and pneumatic trash tubes. Uh, so it was kind of very futuristic, almost sounds a little like something out of Futurama. Beneath the surface of the water, aquaponic systems would fish out waste to help fertilize plants while vertical farms would generate year-round produce. The design for this oceanic city called for floating structures to be bolstered to bio-rock. It's kind of like a material with a limestone coating that's three times harder than concrete, but that can still be made to float so that they could tow these things to safer locations in the event that, you know, there's a disaster coming in. Let's move the city. So although the city still needs funding, the design proposal so far serves as a kind of a blueprint for brave investors. And Victor Kisop, who's the Deputy Executive Director of the UN Human Settlement Programme, said, I see this in many ways as our Apollo 10 dress rehearsal. But of course, there's a lot of downsides to building a community in the sea. For one, floating city projects uh, may find it a little bit difficult to secure approval from local governments. I mean, for example, after signing an agreement with French Polynesia in 2016 to build a floating city off the coast of Tahiti, uh, the Seasteading Institute learned that last year, the government wouldn't be renewing the deal. Uh, in that time since the agreement was announced, the Tahitan locals had grown wary of the billionaire's backed enterprise to take over nearby land, and the government eventually issued a note on Facebook saying that the deal was non-binding. And that public wariness reveals another major challenge uh, just for development of floating cities that the communities nearby could be isolated. Uh, they could become enclaves for the ultra-rich. Oceanic CEO Mark Collins is determined to avoid any kind of a situation like that. Uh, and while presenting his vision at the UN, Collins painted floating cities as a solution to the homelessness crisis in major cities. In his hometown of French Polynesia, Collins said, low-income residents are paying more per square foot than their wealthy neighbors. By developing a floating community that serves both as an extension of an existing city, Colin hopes to alleviate housing constraints caused by growing population and a lack of available land. Unlike Michael Oliver's vision for his autonomous island, Oceanic City would literally be built uh, and operated within a local government's jurisdiction, meaning the grand design feats can be accomplished in a concrete, practical way. Collins told the UN, Everybody on the team actually wants to get this built. We're not just theorizing. But that would be kind of cool, especially when we've got SpaceX going to be doing these offshore launches of Starship. These kind of cities might actually become a thing. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer on SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond.